Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How's it going? All right. Um, going well. I'm glad we are not being trapped in an arena to podcast to the death, and instead we get to do it in this much more calm location. It's certainly a much calmer and more convivial appearance than a Vasky's Rock, I think it's probably fair to say. Um, and yes, it's not exactly a massive spoiler, but that means that this week we are going to be discussing Arena. And as always, we're not doing it alone, so say hello, Graham. Hey, how's it going? Going very well, thanks. How are you? Uh, you know, doing pretty good. I like this episode. <laughs> I'm very glad to hear it. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's it's quite... um. Quite a well-known episode, I think it's fair to say, of uh, of all the ones that we've covered. This is this is probably probably one of the best known. I think it's probably fair to say. Um, but before we get into the episode itself, we always like to ask our guests what their history with Star Trek is. So, um, what's your history with Star Trek, Graham? How did you come to the show? I was definitely a uh, Next Generation fan from a really young age. I remember watching uh, Best of Both Worlds with my dad when I was like six or seven. Uh, but the original series took me a little longer to get into. I, I feel like as a kid, I kind of wrote it off as like, oh, that's the dated one, which is kind of funny because the next generation was also pretty old when I was watching it. Uh, but after the first Abrams movie came out, I think I was you know, like in early high school. I went back and got really into those old episodes and have just, you know, really liked uh, all eras of Star Trek since then. Fantastic. So have you have you worked your way through the other series as well as the classic one then? Yeah, well, okay, I've never finished Voyager. I've jumped around in it quite a bit. Uh, it's just, you know, uh, but yeah, even like Enterprise, I really like. Um, I watch, you know, most of the newer ones. I, I definitely, you know, love Star Trek quite a bit. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, we're very happy to have you along for the episode. And as always, we can turn to Kev for our episode description. So Kev, um, yeah, do you want to give us a summary for this one, please? All right. In Arena, uh, the Enterprise arrives at the Cestus Three outpost um, for some R&R. And as usually happens when they try to get some R&R, something has gone wrong. In this case, the outpost has been obliterated by the Gorn, who are... Have they destroyed everyone and lured them in to a trap? Uh, Kirk and his crew managed to fight them off and get back on the Enterprise and pursue. While pursuing them, both the Gorn ship and the Enterprise are stopped by the Metron, who abhor like vi- Metrons who abhor violence, and they decide to settle this in a quote unquote more civilized way by having Kirk and the lead Gorn do single combat on a planet. Uh, Kirk is eventually able to outsmart the Gorn and by using a little cannon to take him out. But he realizes that the Gorn, uh, the reason they destroyed the outpost was because they felt threatened by its location in their territory. And also just a general life is precious, yada, yada, yada. He realizes that he should spare the Gorn and that earns the Metron's approval. And he is allowed to go free. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, um, like I mentioned at the top of the show, this is very much an episode which has resonated down through popular culture far more than, um, I don't want to say far more than it should, um, but, you know, far more than many things featuring a man in a very obviously rubber lizard costume might otherwise do. Um, so I guess the question is really, does it? do, do we think that it deserves its place in uh, in popular culture. Do we think it deserves to be as well remembered and influential as it is? Um, Graham, what do you what do you think of this one? Uh, do you think it's think it's worth its reputation? Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, to some extent, its reputation might come to the detriment of the show to just like your average Joe viewer because I feel like the the whole Gorn battle is something that's a little more rare in Star Trek than non Star Trek fans might believe based on how famous this episode is but on the other hand all of the basics of star trek are here this is a star trekky star trek episode um you know from the morality lesson to you know going down to a planet uh i i feel like it it makes sense that this is like one of the more famous episodes even if i do think that that battle is kind of uh i don't know it it gets blown out as such a 
this classic Star Trek moment, which is fine, but it's not really super representative of like what the actual show is. Okay, yeah, I think that's I think that's a good place to uh, get us started. Um, Kev, how did you find this one? I mean, yeah, I think its fame is earned in that it's definitely like it makes itself iconic through several different things. I think the premise is very out there. The Gorn costume is very distinctive for good and ill, as we'll get into. Um, it's there's just a lot going on here that you can latch onto as oh, this is Star Trek. In the same way, Balance of Terror was like oh, this is like the first Star Trek episode of Star Trek, it felt like this is, I mean, maybe not the second, but you know what I mean. It's definitely continuing that sort of pattern we're seeing emerge as the show gets late into its first season and the writers have a battle handle of what the show is. So yeah, this is, I definitely think it's deservedly iconic, if that makes sense, even if it's not a perfect episode of television. Yeah, I think that's perfectly fair. It's definitely not a perfect episode of television. I'll, I'll, I'll say that from the top. And um, I think one of the most surprising things about it is how long it takes the Gorn to actually show up. We mm-hmm. get a lot of material um, early on uh, on, on the, the planet where the colony was. And a lot of that material is really compellingly put together. And that really tends to get kind of forgotten because, you know, again, it's hard to deny the gravity of William Shatner wrestling a man in a lizard costume very slowly. Um, and that that does take kind of pull focus. But there's a lot in this episode which really does feel like classic uh, Star Trek. And the amazing thing about the Gorn, in a way, is that, you know, this is, uh, well, other than one very brief appearance in the animated series, this is the... F- they won't show up again until 2005. It will be the tail end of Enterprise before anybody sees the Gorn travel uh, through space again, and it will be a rather different kind of appearance. It's still hard to avoid just how memorable this episode is, though. And it is. It's even if the even if the lizard costume is a bit <clears throat> well rubbish uh, there's no there's a real way around that you know it stands out in the mind for for that reason but it also kind of stands out in the mind because there is an effective kind of um parallel going on it isn't just uh, kirk wrestles a bad guy like the, there's perspective given to the gorn and there's some kind of understanding that that you know maybe maybe things aren't quite as black and white as here's another monster for us to fight and that's that's pretty impressive for again rubbish lizard costume yeah and i think what really helps it stand out beyond just like the lizard costume that section is how it really plays up shatner and his ingenuity the character's ingenuity and his performance are given sort of the center stage and yeah it's silly to see him like wrestle with the guy in the costume but the fact that it's not the wrestling is ineffective and it's more about how he's problem solving is I think what really helps that sequence drives that sequence home. Um, I mean, I guess, well, but we're kind of out of order. Do you want to keep going down the route of the talking about the battle first, or do you want to do the setup first? We should do the setup first, right? Because I do feel yeah. that it's, it's, it's something that I, I want to talk about because I, I do really, really like it. I think it's a very well put together sequence. And um, I mean, it's it's pretty much classic kind of World War Two stuff. You know, if if you uh, took the alien colony and said it was like, a, I don't know, a, a French village or something that's being attacked by Nazis instead of, you know, unseen aliens, like it would take basically no adjustment whatsoever. Uh, it's It's still really effective and it's one of those times where um i think star trek is able to pull on its kind of genre roots really effectively we've we've talked a, a few times in the podcast about um about westerns but you know like world war ii movies are still such a big deal at this point in the mid 60s and you know lots and lots of uh cast and crew have worked on, on those kind of films and i think it really comes through in that in that opening sequence when they're being bombarded when they're being shelled from the hills it's all really tense and good there's some great mm. performances going on and it's just it's just very unexpected you know I really like the fact that the setup is so gentle and doesn't at all tip the hand of, of what's going to happen. And then the second they get down to the planet, like, they're into it. It's 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 pretty brutal in places. It's very very effective. I really think it's such a such a great opening sequence. Yeah, I think it's pretty fantastic. The uh, the first like fifteen minutes or so does a great job of laying laying everything out. Also, uh, 
apparently William Shatner claims that he got permanent ear damage from this from this episode when they were shelling. <laughs> That's uh, why he never surface. listens to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he uh, he he always claims that was like a a real like stuck with him for the rest of his life. This ear damage. So, you know, we really got to give it to Bill this episode because he, he really sacrificed for us. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, and this is I mean, as listeners know, this is such a pro Shatner podcast, not for his personal life, but for his performance. And um, you're saying the show um, signs off on every single decision that William Shatner has ever made in his personal life, right? Totally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we're. it's just he is so good at that instant switch in the cold open. Um, yeah, we don't normally talk about episodes in order like this, but maybe it benefits this one because each section is so different. And that cold open specifically, where he is like all like jovial during that first scene, and the instant they beam down, he just has the turn, and it's just so effective. Uh, the line just pulling out the comms instantly, coolly going like red alert and all. It's just it really locks you in. Uh, I did had the thought shouldn't they know where they're landing like shouldn't they have a visual of where they're headed <laughs> towards but it makes for good television so whatever yeah absolutely i think this is definitely one of the times where we can allow a slight lapse in, in visual logic to uh, to work in favor of the drama of the episode um and it is another one of those times where you see the the sheer charisma that Shatner is able to bring to the screen. You know, he really does just anchor it as somebody who is in charge. Um, and everybody falls into the role very quickly. Like Spock is able to come up with um, solutions and he's able to try and think his way through the situation. But he is immediately deferential. He immediately follows orders. McCoy is exactly the same. You know, he's 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 straight down to business. All the kind of, all the jokiness falls away. And these really do come across as professionals who are in that kind of situation it's it's sort of surprisingly i mean i hesitate to use the word realistic but mm -hmm. you know it it, it 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 feels like it has a core of uh realism to it maybe that's a better way of saying it that that you can really buy into the fact that kirk leads these people because he can lead these people when he's immediately in that situation no prior warning he just gets on with the business of figuring it out he's ordering red shirts around he's getting people killed he's doing his best to try and salvage the situation but it's all it's all pretty credible really and that's that's really so much down to the way that, that Shatner can anchor a scene, but it's also due to the way that all the other characters and actors react to him as well. They immediately respond to the way that he is dominating, um, you know, those early scenes. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a reason that, uh, you know, William Shatner was so in demand in uh, this era of television. It's just because he, he's put in some really uh, some really tough spots acting wise in this episode. I mean, you know, the battle alone is the obvious one, but there is there's just a, a level of gravitas that he can bring to these things that it could have been disastrous with a, a lesser actor. Uh, you know, in the in the Kirk role here, because there's just so much he has to sell in this one. Yeah. And like not like I said, not just having to convince them to fight a guy in a costume, but talking to himself is like one of the hardest things I feel like an actor can do, <laughs> like convincingly making that land and not seem weird or crazy. And I think it works here. Like He has the device of the recorder doing a little log, but even that it's kind of hard to justify but you just kind of go along with it because he is just giving such compelling narration and he still, he still brings the urgency to those little uh, diaries that he's recording as he's in the middle of a battle. Well, and I think those diary entries, you know, I think they're also effective in this episode because we are used to the fact that that's something Kirk does. You know, every episode we get three or four captain's logs when we come back from the, the commercial break or whatever. So the series has already sold that idea to us that that Kirk is narrating in some way his own adventures. So the idea that he's also doing that whilst he's down on the planet doesn't feel that unnatural. It feels pretty pretty mm -hmm. much on a par with, with what we're used to. And I think the episode actually is, is, is very canny in the way that it's able to deploy that. I definitely agree. I think it maybe gets a little... The battle maybe gets a little sweaty once they're once the Metrons are like, 
hey guys, we're going to show you a live feed of, of very <laughs> well edited footage of what's going on on the planet. Uh, but before that, Shatner is really carrying it uh, by himself. Yeah, and it's half the episode too. I mean, you're right, we have those occasional cutaways to the ships and to the Metrons talking. But I did like a little time check and it was almost at the midway point when that battle with the Gorn begins. So that's a lot of episode for Shatner to carry pretty much on his own, just like doing different tactics against the Gorn, trying to avoid other things and getting these this bits of information like what's on the planet that you can use and what are the Gorn's motivations, like in bits and pieces that provide a whole picture. It's, I think, a pretty well-structured battle script-wise, uh, even if we've already sort of tipped our hand and then there's some sort of lacking elements in, I guess, the direction of it. Yeah, the uh, director of this episode uh, was very, very happy to uh, get the episode done a day ahead of schedule, I read, mm-hmm. which, you know, that, that makes sense to me. That, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done with it. I don't have to see this man in a lizard costume anymore. Um, no, that's very cynical. Um, I also, I, I really like the cuts back to the Enterprise during the battle as well. I think it's effective for two reasons. Partly because um, it gives us some kind of perspective. Yes, obviously, seeing on screen exactly what um, what is uh, we're seeing as a viewer is 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 mildly amusing, and that you know the Star Trek crew have to sit around watching an episode of Star Trek. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I quite like the fact that it allows us to develop this alternative perspective on the events that we've already experienced. So we've had this very kind of dramatic pseudo World War Two opening to the the episode, which seems very black and white it seems like something which there isn't really any kind of difficulty in audiences you know taking aside or, or, or sort of making a moral judgment on you know this colony's been destroyed these uh you know colonists have been murdered and and yeah i think kirk actually has a line uh you know crimes being committed and, and we're the policemen out here or something like that um you know it's very unambiguous as to what's right and what's wrong but those cuts back to the ship allow us to develop a different perspective, you know, allow us to, to at least play with the idea that it's not as black and white as we've seen. Murdering the colonists, okay, pretty pretty extreme reaction, but it could be that maybe, maybe the Gorn had a reason and one that we don't initially understand or appreciate when we see the events play out. I'm not sure that it's perfectly handled, but I really, really appreciate the fact that they're making an effort, again, to say that, you know, they're not just monsters. They have a perspective, too. Yeah. Um, I wonder how that's going to square with uh, Strange New World, depicting them as just kind of monsters. <laughs> ba- badly. Uh, yeah, I don't you know, that's, that's, that's for a future episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, that was a big controversy, I remember, when Strange New Worlds was airing. And I guess you just have to take the perspective of, well, you know, there's a lot of Gorn in the universe and they're going to be very different. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it does seem kind of funny that Strange New Worlds kind of takes the main, um, you know, idea of this episode. And it's just like, yeah, but that's not, uh, no, let's not have them be like, oh, actually, there's more to these these aliens like. Strange New Worlds is very, very much like we need a xenomorph type of of threat and the Gorn are going to be that. I I like the show a lot, but, you know, I can definitely see the the criticisms there. I I just think maybe it worked for the submarine episode. I can't remember the name of the the Nebula Cloud one. Great episode. That was a great one. I think, but yeah, the the much maligned on this podcast uh, horror movie ripoff one, I think it would have been better with a non- Gorn alien to yeah it's that just felt like a little too much to put their name into it for no real reason yeah it it doesn't track with with this Gorn at all either like that uh that Gorn we saw in that episode um I don't think the battle between Kirk and that Gorn is gonna take very long yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah but that I mean it's also one of those things where the Gorn in this story um you know, they are shown to be, uh, I don't want to say limited intelligence, but clearly Kirk wins the battle because he's able to figure figure out kind of middle school chemistry, which is fine. 
um mm -hmm. but you know they also have you know spaceships and weapons and all this kind of right. stuff um so there's a slight contradiction i think in the way that the, the gorn on the planet is just rawr attack um and yet the fact that they clearly have you know like well-developed uh technology um well, saying that though i mean it, it does give it does give you know i mean kirk has to have somebody proper to fight so that's what's going on with the story so you know i i understand we only have 50 minutes there's only so much you can squeeze in I think you are getting to maybe my main criticism of this episode, though, uh, which, you know, I hate to I feel like I when I talk about Star Trek, I uh, negatively compare things to Balance of Terror way too much. But something that Balance <laughs> of Terror did really well was to develop that, you know, that Romulan perspective um, to where, you know, they, they gave us a a a counterpoint and antagonist there that you could really get on board with. You could really understand where he was coming from. The Gorn, just by the nature of the costume and by the fact that he's, you know, literally a guy going rawr, it is just so much more limited in that regard. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I feel like they're, they're trying to sell us on this idea that the Gorn are this, you know, intelligent species, but we never see their ship. We never really, you know, which I understand, you know, the budget limitations of, uh, that the show was working under, but I don't think it does a, other than his ability to speak English through a translator. I don't think we ever get a sense that like, Oh, this is like a captain that's on the level of Kirk, just, you know, coming from a, a different civilization. It, it's very much like, Oh, this is a scary lizard man. Who's also wearing clothes. Yeah, I do. The one pushback I have is there is that sort of rope, thing that he does to Kirk um, where he sort of trips him up and I mean that's that's something it's a little it's not as ingenious as the canon but it's something that seems I think he's kind of in a similar situation trying to use the environment against him that's true I guess it's just because he's he's also so slow which I know was right. they were doing that on purpose because you know one because of the costume but two this idea of like oh he's a slow moving reptile um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like they could have done more to get the intelligence of the Gorn across. But you're right. They they do give us that at least. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's almost like the biases you two are bringing against the Gorn are being challenged by this very episode. He's, and like he has that and he has the, the short conversation with Kirk at the end. But the conversation where he's like, yeah, we have territory. We have a we have our own federation. It's being threatened by this outpost. And I don't know. It's. It, it, you're right that it's no Romulan Catherine Balance of Terror, and it's not a very well-developed personality around him. But I think there is definitely an attempt to show that this... The idea, at least, behind it, even if it's not well-conveyed, um, is that the Gorn is as intelligent as Kirk. And I think we can quibble whether it's well-conveyed. I mean, I also... Oh, I don't think it's that much of a quibble. I think I agree it's not transmitted as well as it could have been. But I definitely think that idea is there. That he's not just another dumb alien in a costume. He's not like a, I don't know, like a Doctor Who villain or whatever who's just bumbling around and trying to kill as many people as possible. He is, like, supposed to be, at least, a sentient being on the same level as these humans. I've been looking forward to saying this ever since we started this podcast, Kev, and we haven't had the mm. chance to say it now. But for the first time in Star Trek, you know what we have? We have a stumpy, stumpy bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm absolutely, uh, absolutely thrilled at. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, if people didn't listen to the Doctor Who, our Doctor Who audio fiction podcast uh, was about the big Finnish plays. Uh, the phrase comes up a lot with Doctor Who when you have a Cyberman or an Iceman or a Silurian whose existence is just to stomp around and be a bad guy. So, And the Gorn, you're right. The Gorn is very much... One of those, I mean, I was going on and on about script intention behind him, but you're right, in practice, that's what he is. Yeah, that's it. And I think, you know, I the whole thing, I think, that would really do what you're, I think, trying to get at, Kev, you know, that, that kind of deepening, is I think if we got the idea, if we got even just a few more lines of dialogue about the idea that mm -hmm. we are, are, we, as in the Enterprise, are invading their territory... I think that would be the thing that would make the difference for it because 
I think that's kind of a fascinating idea. And, you know, I think it's another one of those things where particularly in the first season of Star Trek, we get the idea that the, the galaxy is really big. And just because we mm. have a federation or just because we have Starfleet doesn't mean that other civilizations don't. So we've met the Romulans already and we know that they do. Um, we haven't had the Klingons yet. Obviously, we'll meet them and we know that they do. But that idea that other other places, other species have territories in the same way that we do, I think that's really compelling. And it would be kind of interesting to explore the idea of like a colony. And that, even that word, colony, carries so much kind of weight um, being established on the world. You know, did the Goran try and warn the Federation off prior to this slaughter? Is there a, is there a, you know, a way that the Federation could have known and then just carried on? I mean, if you're talking about colonialism and particularly you like the Western as roots of kind of American colonialism and, and the oppression of, of native people, is that something that has happened in the Federation's past or was it genuinely sort of blissful ignorance? Like it never even occurred to them that this planet might belong to someone else. And why, if, if that was the case, why is the Gorn's first reaction to just obliterate people rather than sending them a message saying, excuse me, would you mind buggering off our planet, please? Because I don't know. I, I just, I feel there's such a core idea that that could be a, such a compelling way of looking an alien species and the episode constantly faints towards it without ever quite managing to stick the landing and i think that's a real shame because yeah it's it's a really interesting idea and star trek will go on to say a lot about kind of colonialism and oppression and all that and i know we're still sort of fairly early on in its run but it's interesting to see this the, the series kind of working up as it were to kind of having those kind of debates having that kind of argument within its kind of sci-fi framework um i just yeah i just wish it had been pushed a bit further in this episode well i feel like if this was you know berman era trek you know 80s 90s star trek it would have been and i'm not saying this would have been better or worse but i feel like it would have been established that the um you know the the federation putting this this colony there somehow uh you know really hurt the gorn in a way that the that the Federation didn't understand uh, and maybe inadvertently like wiped out one of their, um, you know, towns as well, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then they would immediately be like, oh, it's automatically like on equal footing, you know, a kind of an eye for an eye kind of thing. I feel like that's how 90s track would have handled it. I think it might be more interesting this way where the Gorn, they we really have to guess at their motives to some extent, you know, there's, we know so little about their civilization. So we kind of have to bring a lot to it. I suppose so. I mean, I think 60s Trek does it as well, because that's basically what devil in the dark is. Um, it, it kind of follows that, that pattern as well. So I, I don't, I, I mean, I definitely agree with what you're saying about Berman era Trek. Absolutely. But I think, you know, I think 60s Trek is perfectly capable of doing that this time out. It, it just isn't, quite there it would be interesting i mean given the the um history of this episode and the writing of it i think you can tell that there's been a lot of rewriting done on this episode um Mm -hmm. to get around issues shall we say is that a polite way of saying it um (laughs) uh, and 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 i think maybe that's one of the things that because i do think you know i do think there's a lot of very interesting ideas there and they don't they don't quite come into focus and i suspect that that might be at least a, a little bit um because of, uh, yeah, because of, how can we put this politely, the dubious origins of the original idea for this episode? Is that a polite way of saying it? I guess we should get into that. Um, so apparently, because this is how TV used to be, there was a new episode coming. If not in the next week, it needed to be shot very soon. And because you need to have an episode a week and they had nothing. So writer Gene L. Kuhn, uh apparently worked in a hotel room and cracked cranked this out in a night and it was uncovered that it bears a lot of similarities to a short story also titled arena and it could have been coincidental it could have been subconscious it could have been conscious regardless it was caught and the rights to arena were bought just so the name could be slapped onto this episode and not get a lawsuit Good on Fred- Frederick Brown, you know, getting that free Star Trek money for oh, a absolutely. story he had written like 25 years earlier. 
And it's such a it's such a great pulpy sci-fi idea. You know, it's going to come back again mm. and again and again. There's loads of sci-fi series that have done it exactly this. Farscape's done an episode like this. Blake Seven has done an episode like this. You know, it's just going to keep on rolling. Just not even the first TV show to do it. Outer Limits, I'm seeing, also did an episode like this. Well, yes, absolutely. Um, and you know, it's 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 a compelling idea. I mean, if you really want to stretch a point, you could argue that a lot of sort of gladiator movies kind of fall fall into this kind of basically it's exactly i mean the title arena kind of gives it away um but you know it's it's a compelling idea you have two characters who are roughly equally matched um and you know one of them has to try and outthink the other uh i think it's very telling that the um weight is kind of I mean, you kind of obviously it's Captain Kirk, so you know what way it's going to go. But you know, one has brains and one has brawn. Which one will triumph? I mean, you know, you can probably you can probably figure that one out without um, you know flowchart and and various pointy arrows. But it's it's still there's something about that kind of core idea that still kind of rings true about it. And I don't know. I think that elemental nature of it is kind of what works about this episode most for me. Like, I mean, we can get into, again, how sort of lame it is whenever that Kirk in that costume go hand to hand. I think the full, something that hasn't mentioned yet is like the Foley effects are super weak. Like, I don't, I'm not even usually have an ear or for that kind of like technical sound detail, but even I was picking up like, oh, these punches and like thuds Kirk being tossed around are like nothing. <laughs> they have no impact. <laughs> um, But yeah, it's just, it's such a good idea to have two people with nothing going on and their own wits to survive doing that. Um, so my favorite movies are like that as well. I mean, the less intelligent than the Gorn is the shark from the shallows, which is a B movie from a few years ago. I keep coming back to is like such a great example of that. Um, I don't know. There's other like survival stories like that, that are very compelling, whether the other opponent is sentient or non-sentient. It's just always a great, story to go to and i think with the sort of the makeshift canon thing that's a solution because i think all these kinds of use your wits to survive stories you need to have a compelling and uh, clever enough solution to make them satisfying and i think setting up elements like the sulfur the bamboo and the diamonds separately and then having them come together at the end is what makes that satisfying I would definitely agree. Um, I I do think that the the whole canon that he assembles there, I I feel like if it was directed a bit differently, it could have more of an impact. I mean, maybe it's just the prop itself. The prop is, it. I don't really buy that it could, you know, actually mm-hmm. work. Which is is fine. You know, it's sixty sci fi TV, but. I do feel like there was kind of a, a build up. Um, it, it was at least well built up like, OK, he needs this. He needs this. You know, we have Spock kind of commenting on it back on the ship. Um, it makes for a, uh, a compelling conclusion there. I will say going back to the the uh, kind of Frederick Brown story connection, I think the thing that really made them go, OK, this is too close to the original story was kind of the inclusion of that that kind of third higher power the one who's kind of Mm. setting these two forces up against each other and is morally judging them i think it's i think the metrons are kind of interesting i suppose is the best adjective i'm going to come up with it's not quite the right one um because you know for a judgy godlike species they don't really seem to have much of a leg to stand on they, they seem, you know, oh, we're much more civilized. So here, you two fight to the death and, and we'll see what happens. Um, you know, it, it's not it's it's not even capricious in a way that, say, the Squire of Gothos is or Q. Um, and it's not kind of the arrogance and tragedy of Apollo when we get up to that. It just seems to be kind of there. And it, it, it's a... It's a kind of a funny one when we talk. I mean, we've obviously we've talked about godlike beings before in the podcast, and we will certainly be talking about them again. But it's one of those ones where they are just a plot function. There and they really have, you know, like they're sitting in judgment over the Gorn and and over uh, the humans or the Enterprise, I should say, without any kind of. Um, real framework that suggests, other than the fact that they're really, really powerful, 
why they are kind of superior because honestly ultimately they're just not they're not morally or ethically superior to either the gorn or the enterprise they're just a lot more powerful so they can do something about it when these two ships happen to stray into their space i think that's one of the uh, kind of uh one of the things about star trek that's that's always such a kind of a a funny um kind of split between you know there's the whole side of star trek of oh it's optimistic and it's it's about solving problems through science but there's so many episodes especially of the original series where you know the enterprise is really in the hands of an angry or indifferent or frivolous god and uh i i think this episode isn't even the isn't even like the best example of that this season but it is kind of funny that they 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 see themselves as so far above humanity when you know they have set up this violence and also at at the end of the day it doesn't seem like they have a lot of a uh, compassion for now they they'd say they have some compassion but their compassion is we know this is going to be very emotional for for the crew so uh here um, we're going to broadcast your captain's death uh, mm. live on your screen <laughs> like yeah I totally agree. They don't have much of a leg to stand on there. And I think most uh, godlike beings in Star Trek don't. Yeah. Um, I do like the implication that they were going to kill the Enterprise anyways. That Because at the end, he says something like, and because you spared the Gorn, we will spare you, even though the deal was the other way around. Apparently, there were cut lines in the script that explained this further about... Um, oh, because the, if the, whoever wins this competition is the actual biggest threat to the universe, so they are the ones who actually have to die. I'm glad and, they cut that because it's a good, yeah. it's a good line. Yeah, it's I think it's works like it works better with the implication of just you put the pieces together yourself for sure. What do you think of the uh, the you know there's the the famous line from this where he's talking about how like you know in a thousand years we can you know really sit down mm-hmm. and have a conversation um that's always been kind of something that's just out there lingering in you know star trek lore just kind of this this question of like if humanity will eventually be on the level to to speak to these beings um i always thought it was kind of an interesting thing uh that this script tosses in there obviously they never intended to follow up on it it does it's Mm. kind of the only thing though that i think really gives the the Metron's kind of a kind of a interesting otherworldly like there it it's the line that like most lingers with me uh from the right. Metrons. I mean, not to be obnoxiously into the canon about this, since obviously they weren't thinking about this in the sixties or today, but uh I'd be funny to see the Metrons come back in Star Trek Discovery's current timeline, which is a thousand years in the future, and be like, Oh, things didn't work out as well as we thought they would. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm kind of surprised Discovery hasn't. Now, I'm not totally caught up on Discovery, but I don't think they've tackled this yet. No. Uh, it would be kind of funny if they ever decided to. I, I would also be interesting to see whether they would still go for the same aesthetic choice as having the Metrons portrayed by what I can only describe as an extremely fey teenage boy in a bedsheet. Um, I don't <laughs> know that they would make the same aesthetic choices these days. Um, and I understand kind of why i guess the original show did that because it's that contrast between something which looks incredibly innocuous but still is possessed of this enormous power um i i don't know i'm i'm very much in two minds about it on the other hand i'm on the one hand i'm not completely sure that it's an effective on-screen portrayal on the other hand mm. i don't really know what else they would have gone with other than maybe some just some sparkly lights or whichever which probably wouldn't be any more effective, yeah. but I, I don't know. It's it, I, I can't help but feel it slightly undermines things. I think that kid's bad. I think he's bad in the episode. <laughs> right, I thank, think, you. Uh, thank you for saving me from saying I, that. <laughs> I I think they could have uh, found someone else to to deliver those lines, and you know it would probably arrive with a little more impact. Uh, I did not think that was a good performance. Maybe that wasn't completely, you know. Uh, that actor's fault because you know there is kind of this like otherworldly effect being put on his lines and all of that but yeah uh that that performance is just it's a weird one it's a weird choice 
And, you know, it, it does kind of come through of like, okay, this was an episode of TV that was shot, you know, very quickly in six days. Uh, I think that's one of the signs of it. I don't want to be too down on the direction of this episode. I think there was some, you know, some really inventive good stuff there. But right. yeah, that's just not one of them. That performance is that performance. Well, I want to get into the Metron performance because I think it is actually kind of fascinating. Um, the body of the Metron was Carolyn Berry, a mid-20s at the time, I haven't done the exact math, dancer um, working in uh, California and a and Carolyn, she I mean, she was a woman, and I think they're doing a Peter Pan casting there. But the voice is Vic Perrin, the narrator of Outer Limits and Spaceship Earth. So, original narrator, of course, not Judy Tench as it is now or whoever. But um, yeah, it's so they got like a veteran voice person who's in his like fifties to do the voice of a teenage-looking boy portrayed by a twenty-something woman physically. So I think all of those elements are what is clashing. But I kind of have the same opinion of it as I do of the Gorn costume, where it's not effective, but it's memorable. And I take memorable over bland. For that's sure. fair. And, and, you know, that I do think that's I probably wasn't giving it enough credit there because I think that's an interesting choice. Like, right. What you just described there, like on paper, that sounds really interesting to me. I, I just don't think the. Uh, the execution totally worked, um, but it definitely gives the Metrons this. You wouldn't mistake them from it for, you know, any other uh, species of alien that, you know, Kirk and the crew are talking to week in, week right. out. So I'll give them that at least. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm on the same page. It's yeah, it's not it's not really effective. I don't like it doesn't bowl me over. I feel kind of like uh, about it, but I just think, yeah, it's an interesting choice. Yeah, and especially if they're trying to go for that slightly uncanny kind of thing that you can tell mm. something is slightly off about it, but it's not necessarily immediately clear what that might be. I, again, I, I, I very much agree with you, Kev. I'd rather that they made the choice and failed rather than just going for something, that, like I said, like a sparkly effect or whatever. You probably wouldn't wouldn't nail it either. I don't think it quite works. But but you know you know fair fair enough for for making the effort about it and you know in comparison to the Gorn oh god there's something I have to mention uh, we don't generally speaking talk about special effects all that much in terms of like the the more modern uh, CGI updates but there's one thing I have to mention because I was watching this on Netflix I don't know why because I've got the DVDs but anyway never mind um, and they've made the Gorn blink in CGI. And I cannot tell you how much that infuriated me because it's just like, uh, you know, there's no aesthetic reason for doing that whatsoever. Like, I understand, like, allegedly the reason for the CGI is because stuff has to be upscaled for 4K and all that. And I I don't know, maybe sure, maybe not. Um, But adding that blink to the Gorn just infuriated me on a level that I can hardly find the words to articulate. It's just so wrong. It's it's classic kind of George Lucas territory stuff, you know. It's just yeah. it, it just so so badly annoyed me. I'm sorry. That's completely apropos of nothing. I had to mention it when it was in my mind. No, but this is this is the same thing that comes up whenever talk about remastered stuff, and that is egregious like that. It's revisionist. Like, yes. and it's not, it's not making the Gorn more effective. It still looks goofy. <laughs> I just add another goofy thing on top of it. If anything, I think that the, the really strange dead eyes of the Gorn are like maybe the best part of the costume. Mm-hmm. Like, I really like the eyes on the Gorn. To be honest, like, I like the Gorn costume as, you know, uh, like as a piece of costume design, I think it's really, it's really fun. Right. Uh, in motion, you know, obviously it's it doesn't really do everything the episode is asking it to do. But yeah, just going back and adding this kind of because if, if there's any strength to come out of that costume, it is how dead eyed the Gorn are. I think that's also part of, you know, part of what really works in the episode is you have to Kirk and the crew have to see the Gorn differently. Right. And I think adding those blinks in there, you know, it's not a huge deal, but I do think that it kind of undermines like the initial impression of the Gorn, which is that they're 
this completely like creepy dead-eyed reptilian species which is backed up by the speech that kirk gives you know he says that he finds the gorn like deeply weird and, and strange and that he's, he's yeah i think he, he calls them he repulsive, to it. right like yeah, he has a repulsion exactly. to yeah and and so yeah you're right and 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 giving it that just 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 undercuts that a wee bit it's it's such a i don't know it's just ugh. it just just ugh. that's all i have to say on the subject yeah um trying to think of any more wrap-up thoughts that i had i think the only remaining thought in my notes that i really wanted to point out is back to the sort of as discussed like world war ii artillery sequence when they first encountered the gorn on cetus three uh i just like all the somersaults shatner and nimoy are doing and you can very clearly see their faces so it must i assume it's them unless they got really good stunt double lookalikes but you will never see a really good stunt double lookalike in star trek <laughs> yeah, they're always figure. massively conspicuous so yeah, it's the, a good somersaulting from Shatner and Nimoy during that scene. It's a, it, I couldn't do that, so <laughs> good on them. It was fun looking. I will say, and this is like the most nitpicky thing ever. There is a, a sequence, you know, uh, George Takaya Sulu, one of the best button pushers in the game. Mm. He's oh, yeah. usually always on, always on point with the button pushing, really selling it. But there is... That scene right after they've been shelled and right before they get beamed up. And then the next scene is, um, you know, them with the the leader of Cestus three uh, talking in, in sick bay uh, when they're talking to Sulu and he's pushing a few buttons to presumably beam them back up or whatever. Uh, go back and watch that scene. It is the most disinterested uh, uh Takai has ever looked in pushing buttons. He's really just like, he's not even looking at them. He's just like flicking like three things. It is the, maybe the only time in the original series where you're like, this guy doesn't know what these buttons do. (laughs) And for some reason it has always stuck with me. So I had to mention that in this episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I do think Takai and uh, Nichelle Nichols and Doohan as well, get some great reaction shots. Not much to do. Uh, in this episode, but like some of the cutaways to the, on the scene ships to them, they do some really good uh, reacting, like big, oh no faces. I think that was just some effective stuff from them, since that's kind of all they're asked to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, Nichelle Nichols has that horrified scream when, uh, when you know, Shatner's beamed off the bridge. Mm-hmm. And I think they, they sell that really well, just like how strange this situation is. Like, it it's easy to take for granted in Star Trek, just, you know, people getting popped off the off the uh, bridge all the time to different locations. But this is one of the first times that that had really I mean, it's happened before on the show, but I think they really sold like how unexpected and, and terrifying to the crew that was uh, in that scene. I, I, I thought that they did a great job there. Yeah, I agree. And I think it does. It does show the the value of having utility players of that. Um that strength in, in, in a, uh, you know, ensemble show like Star Trek, there's been a couple of times, and this is one of the episodes where it's definitely true, where um, having the future knowledge of how little respect uh, George Takai and William Shatner have for each other kind of colors the way that I view the scene because it makes me appreciate George Takai as an actor so much more because there's, there's certainly a couple of times when he's like looking at Kirk and he's like full of kind of like, wide-eyed sort of um captain captain tell us what to do sort of enthusiasm and then kirk tells him what to do and then he goes away and does it and 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 uh george takai is so good at that and so good at playing Mm -hmm. that role and knowing how little love was lost between those two people even at the time never mind everything that's transpired since just really ups my kind of appreciation for for how how good an actor george takai is and uh and Doohan too he he always gets so little to do i mean not always but especially early on i feel like they really underutilize him and i liked his little scene here where spock is like well did you try this and he's just immediately well yeah of course i tried that it didn't work you know i i feel like he's he's so able to sell that that engineer character just like yeah of course he's already tried that he's scotty um (laughs) and he's always able to bring that with so little screen time you know oh yeah it's i mean i understand that the original series doesn't really correct me if i'm wrong but there aren't really any uhura sulu or scotty like focus episodes of this show and that almost feels like a shame because they are such great 
actors in their constant utility role. And they bring so much to those, like, I don't want to say fully thankless, but especially, I guess, by modern standards, where you'd probably give a lot, be a lot more generous to the rest of your cast. Definitely lighter parts. Yeah, I think that's something that, you know, the the, the movies, um, especially three and four, are really generous with what they, mm-hmm. they give the cast to do. And I feel like that kind of colors how people remember the original series. And I think people often remember those characters having more to do than they actually did. And it's kind of a credit to those actors that they were as iconic in those roles as they were with just so little screen time and so little of like actual emotional weight to, to convey in these episodes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's fair. I mean, there are one or two occasions where they will get to step forward into the limelight. So Scotty gets uh, wolf in the fold, for example, or, uh, you know, Hura gets a really big role in, in Plato's stepchildren. And so there are occasions where they do get to step forward into the light, but they are, they are undeniably sort of few and far between. I feel like Takai especially was uh, always underutilized on this show. Like whenever they do more Sulu stuff, you know, like the the Abrams movie goes to like, oh, well, he 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 really loves swords. He's a sword fighting guy because it is because of one scene in the original series. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, I, I agree with what you were t- saying about him earlier. Like he's able to to take that pretty thankless role and really turn it into something more memorable. And I think with that, we can probably bring our discussion of arena to the close, which means we get to grade it. And I'm going to kick things off because I never get to give the first grade. So I'm going to grade it as bang in the middle, seven and a half. I think there's a lot of good material here. I think a couple of rewrites might have really brought a few bits and pieces into focus. Um, But, you know, there's a reason that this episode is, and I hate this word, but I'm going to use it anyway, iconic. It is iconic. We haven't even mentioned Vasky's Rock yet, but, you know, Vasky's Rock. Um, No, I have. It's 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 iconic for a reason, um, and and whatever whatever bumps might be along the way in terms of dodgy lizard costumes or in terms of um, slightly clunky uh, delivery, you know it it overcomes all of these. It's 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 not perfect, but it's 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 one of the most Star Trekiest episodes that Star Trek has ever Star Trekked. I I mean this is the most tempted I've been to break my rule and give a 0.5 grade <laughs> because I am, but I'm a, do it. I'm a point do higher. It. Do it. No, the idea of racking my brain around a 20 point scale instead of a 10 point scale is too much for me. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm torn between it being a strong eight or a soft nine. Even I think, um, yeah, it's, it's just that I just found it very compelling. I think the iconicness works in its favor for me really hard. And, I, I just, like I said, these are the kind of stories that appeal to me, the survival battle of wits stories. But I think in this discussion kind of lowered my opinion of it a little bit, making me realize, oh yeah, there weren't some elements that worked so well. So I think I'm going to settle on eight. But yeah, I think this is on the stronger side of eight. I think it is definitely a pretty uh, pretty great episode of television, even with its flaws. That's fair. I think I'm going to uh, bring up the rear a little bit and just give it a seven. I definitely like this episode. Um, I totally agree with it being a Star Trekky Star Trek episode. I don't think that it reaches the heights that the show was capable of reaching, even in even mm-hmm. in like its early episode. I don't think it's Balance of Terror. Uh, I don't think it's even the Squire of Gothos. But it is a just a really solid premise executed pretty well if it if that execution was just brought up like a little bit higher uh if Mm -hmm. it was if you know it's clear to me that this is a an episode that was written very quickly right and i feel like if a lot of those little details were ironed out a little more um i would probably go higher but it's still a really solid entertaining episode of star trek and so that's going to be a seven for me Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, in that case, I think we can close down this and move on to our recommendations. So, Graham, you are our guest this week. So uh, what would you like to recommend? Um, I'm going to go ahead and recommend the 1956 boxing movie, The Harder They Fall. Uh, It stars Humphrey Bogart. Uh, It's actually his last role. Um, And it is just I watched this movie. uh, a couple months ago on on the Criterion channel. And I was just like 
shocked by how kind of cynical and and uh like morally gray it is for a 50 studio movie um it's kind of a it's kind of a uh a look into the boxing world that kind of takes it as a given that boxing is evil which is kind of an interesting mm-hmm. perspective for a 50s boxing movie to take um and yeah it's just got a great performance from Bogart who's kind of torn as this fight promoter. Um, I don't want to give too much away about it, but it's got a great script. Uh, I, I really want people to, to check it out. Oh, that's fascinating. I hope it's on criterion. I'll check it out. I think it is. I really hope if not, I think it was on HBO max too, but you know, with HBO max now, who, who knows, but right. I think it was on both of them. Okay. Um, I am going to recommend a more recent movie that I just saw in theaters. Might be out of a limited release in the U.S. by the time this comes out. But uh, hopefully it'll be streaming rentable somewhere soon. And that is uh, Broker, the latest film from... Oh, no. I was trying to pull up the Wikipedia page at the same time because I want to get the first name right. Hirokazu Koreeda. Uh, He's one of my favorite directors even though this is not my third film i've even seen i need to go through his backlog more but um afterlife and shoplifters are two favorites of mine and this one also um like those movies it's very much about found family it's very much a big emotional movie that sort of has these intense stakes but is much more about like the softer feelings rather than the thriller elements Uh, It's about these two men in South Korea who use a baby box sort of drop-off point for babies at a church, and they take the babies from there and sell them for adoption rather than having them go to the orphanage, as is the point of the box. Uh, When they sell them for adoption, uh, what happens is a mother of one of the kids uh, comes back for her kid before they have the chance to sell them off, and she insists in getting involved. And also the two men are being tracked by the police. One of the police officers uh, played by Duna Bay, who has come up on this podcast before. Maybe, I don't know if on mic, but definitely off mic between JG and I. Uh, the wonderful actor from Cloud Atlas, Sense8, and other like and some other great Korean shows and movies. Um, and then, oh yeah, and then of course the lead is uh, one of the two men selling the baby is Song Kang-ho, who's maybe the other Korean actor I know. I apologize for not knowing more, but uh, both of them are incredible in this movie. And like, as you can figure out from my description, like the two men and the woman, and then another uh, slightly older than the baby orphan they pick up along the way, wound up forming this sort of found family. It's all very cute. It's all very emotional. And it really got to me. It's such a good movie about that sort of thing. It, even though you can kind of see these sort of emotion developments coming from a mile away, it still manages to sneak up on you and become very effective. And yeah. And like, there's some other elements for beyond this, the police officers and how like there's this net closing in on these people. And as they're sort of blissfully unaware that they're on the run, so to speak, but it winds up working out really well that's both attention angle, but then also just that uh, character focus angle as well. Yeah, I really loved it, and hopefully you get a chance to see it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to recommend a TV series this week, and unusually, it's an Amazon Prime series. Amazon Prime are a funny <laughs> streamer. Um, they they, they, they uh, They're pretty. I mean, even by streamer standards, they're pretty hit and miss when it comes to original content. But I'm going to recommend The Rig, um, which is a sci-fi drama um, set on, and you'll really struggle to be surprised by this, a rig, an oil rig specifically. Um, it's it's a very Scottish series, which obviously wins my immediate um, approval. Um, and it's basically a Doctor Who story, but without the TARDIS. It's, it's very, very Doctor Who, but I absolutely loved it. It's only six episodes long, uh, and it stars Ian Glenn, um as uh the leader of this uh or the captain really i should say of this uh oil rig uh which gets engulfed by a mysterious fog um and then lots of lots of bad things start happening it's it's a really kind of suspenseful um drama 
it's 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 so Doctor Who. It's just everything about it just reeks of Doctor Who, including the cast. Obviously, uh, Ian Glenn's been in Doctor Who. He was uh, Father Octavius in, in Flesh and Stone. Um, although I guess he's probably better known for Game of Thrones, but you know, I don't care about that. Um, it's it's everything about it is great. The cast are phenomenal. Mark Bonner's in it. Uh, Martin Comston. It's just such a a really good, fun, entertaining, tense piece of kind of like sci-fi for the dead of winter. You know, it's it's a great little show. Uh, it's produced just up the road from where I live in Edinburgh. Uh, so it's actually a Scottish production as well, um, down in Surrey Leith. And it's such a wonderful, um, engaging kind of piece. It's all about the characters. That's really the thing. The sci-fi plot is perfectly fine. Um, anybody who's uh, familiar with, um, oh, I don't know, Quatermass, there's lots of Quatermass in it. Um, there's there's um, bits of Silurians from Doctor Who and the Waters of Mars and Terror of the Zygons, lots of stuff there. Um, but really, it's the characters that make it compelling. And everybody, absolutely everybody in the cast is just going above and beyond to deliver um, you know, characters in, in what is, you know, basically just, yeah, yeah, Doctor Who with the serial numbers filed off. It's just great. Owen Teal is phenomenal in this, uh, as Hutton. Um, uh, even minor roles are very, very well fleshed out. It's just a great, like, six-part drama. You don't need to uh, invest vast amounts of time in it. It all kind of comes together at the end. And so, yeah, that's my recommendation this week, The Rig. Yeah, that Both sounds those great. sound really good. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to like make a note for both of those. It's it's really unusual. I recommend anything on Amazon. Like I think the last thing I recommended on Amazon was Tales from the Loop, which is well over a year ago now. And I think before that it was probably Man in the High Castle. Beyond that, I just don't think Amazon are very good at producing original content. But this was such a <laughs> not yeah. a big blue. Jack was... Ryan fan. Not really a Jack Ryan. Those, those shows are like I know they're meant to be cheesy, but just just not quite the right flavor of cheese for me, I'm afraid. Yeah, and I think Amazon. I watch Invincible, and that's pretty solid. And I like A League of Their Own, fine enough. But I think solid is pretty much. On fire. Yeah, that's the thing. I think so many of their shows are just solid. They never they never quite manage to take the next step up. Honestly, even given all the Scottishness and the connections and the, and the, like an absolutely stacked cast, I was kind of not really interested in watching this just because it was on Amazon, um, just mm. because it was a prime thing. And it was only kind of reading some of the like the critical feedback and the fact it's been getting really great reviews that kind of persuaded me to give it a go. And I'm really, really glad that I did because it's, it's so much more engaging than the usual, ah, you know, stick it on kind of stuff that, that prime generally mm. produce. So, um, yeah, like if you're just in the mood for something, which is just Dr. Who basically, they definitely give it a go. Oh, you know what? I, if we're on Amazon, should I do have to stick up for rings of power? I, I mean, it's not a <laughs> competent I, I show, but it's still a compelling you know. one. <laughs> I, I, it's, I, 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 I I know it has its defenders, but I, I, I wish I was one of them, but I'm just, I just couldn't get on yeah. with it. And I guess I'll cop to being a, a fan of the boys. I do like the boys. It's a little obnoxious sometimes, but you know, it, it's, it's pretty fun show. I still need to check out rings of power. I just, it's just so, uh, I don't it's... know, you know, the conversation around it was so exhausting. Oh, totally. It's a show that has wildly wild, like incompetencies of like, Oh, I can't believe a TV show is fumbling this part this badly. And then it's with like wild highs as well of, Oh my God, they've got this aspect of Tolkienian uh, mood down so well. Like, I think they have the vibe and emotion and perfect. And I think it's a great cast in service of writing that is um, really ambitious and trying something, but like is missing the so many fundamentals. And I really hope that season two brings those fundamentals into it i know i read interviews the showrunners and it sounds like they may have learned some lessons and i really hope so because there's so much good about that show i really want it to be actually well made <laughs> oh and like i mean well made it looks gorgeous like on a production level it's incredible oh yeah but even yeah, i'm not even i'm not going to argue that it, it definitely yeah. is uh definitely is an amazing looking show but then again if they spent a billion pounds on it i kind of feel it should be <laughs> yeah i was gonna yeah. say that it, 
They it would be funny if it looked like a, you know like a star show from from two thousand two or something with that budget. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well then I think we can uh, leave our recommendations there and we can move on to plugs. So Graham, what would you like to plug? Uh, well, I have a a YouTube channel called uh, Captain Midnight, and I post weekly videos on there uh, usually. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Graham B forty seven. Um. And yeah, I guess that's that's all my plugs. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for joining us on our Arena episode. It's been lovely to have you here. Yeah, thank you. This was really fun. All right. Yeah, same for me. It was great. Um, and yeah, if you want to follow our podcast, we're on Twitter at TalkTrekToYou. You can follow us as well. I'm on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. You can also listen to me... Um, generally on average once a month on the podcast total massacre and then jg's other writings are www.jgmcquarrie.scott jgmcquarrie.scott and his other podcast is beatles stuffology where he and andrew deacon go through the beatles song by song please like rate review and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us Fantastic. Thank you very much. And we can leave things there for now. Next episode, uh, tomorrow is yesterday. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.